you didn't grab an outline through the door on the right hand side, you will find an outline and it is going to be pretty close to the verses I use other than what I just throw in there by memory as I'm going. And you may wonder where I got this topic. You will notice on the outline it does say John 14, 1 through 6. Uh, go ahead and mark that, put a finger there. We are going to cover all of those verses as we talk a little bit about preparing for eternity. And you may wonder how I decided to speak on this. Later in the week, I was actually getting ready for a meeting. Uh, and the reason was I was trying to make sure that I didn't find myself unprepared. And as we began to go through the meeting, it became very apparent to me that there were people that were in that meeting who were very unprepared. And I began to think a little bit on the spiritual side as I sat there. And I think the same thing is true for many people when it comes to uh, eternity and spiritual things. I think many people have, have, well, they're just not prepared at this point. And so I began to think a little bit about that. And then I began to think and, and jot down verses. And yesterday as I was studying and reading, I found an interesting statistic. And it's funny talking about uh, Britain and them having a baby. I read that the average couple spends 12 to 16 or 12 to 18 months preparing for their wedding day. Now, here's what's interesting. When we go back and we study the Bible, we will learn that the Bible teaches that the church is the bride of Christ. And if we actually go over to Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, uh, it describes this marriage feast. Now, I'm going to read just Revelation 19:7. Notice what we find here. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Notice this. This is the important part. And His wife hath made herself ready. What do we find there about the church? Well, we find out that they are prepared for this wedding feast to take place, for the marriage of the Lamb to take place. And so as we look at the book of Revelation and as we look at the rest of the Bible in a number of places, uh, we find by Revelation that faithful Christians, collectively we're talking about the church, they've prepared themselves for eternity. Uh, they haven't allowed the troubles of the world to prevent them uh, from being faithful or to sidestep them in achieving their heavenly goal. And that's basically what we're going to notice as we look at John 14. Go on over to John 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll actually break these verses down. Uh, and I'll try not to get sidestepped too much, but there are a couple of things I am going to mention. And I will say this for anyone watching it online. You may hear something today you've never heard before. I know for us, the majority of us here, we have studied it in great detail, but there will be people online that will hear what I'm saying that are just going to be flabbergasted. Uh, and so, again, I will give verses. Uh, it really needs an entire sermon by itself, which we have. You can go back in our sermons on YouTube, and you can find me speaking on it. Follow along John 14, 1 through 6. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come, cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus begins to tell them about a prepared place. What we find here in Jesus speaking to His disciples are words of comfort. Now, a logical question for anybody who just heard me say that is, why is Jesus, why does He need to give the disciples words of comfort? Or why do they need to be encouraged? Well, if we go back and we look in context in the previous chapter, and I'll summarize it real quick, you're going to notice that the disciples are pretty disheartened at this point. They're, they're actually very sad at the things that Jesus has just told them. Let me give you a recap. Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray Him. John 13, 18 through 22. Along with this betrayal is going to come the departure of Christ. John 13, 36. And then as Jesus is telling them this, Peter says He wants to go with Him. And as a matter of fact, Peter says that He's going to lay down His life for Christ. And Jesus then tells Peter he's actually going to deny him. John 13, 37 through 38. They just received a whole bunch of bad information all at once. Have you guys ever just had somebody just bombard you with information that you weren't prepared for? 
And guys, go back and think of the apostles. They're with the Messiah. They had, they had really misunderstood expectations of what was going to take place. Uh, they thought they were, in essence, on the winning team and that everything's going to work out the way they wanted it to work out. Well, that's not what they're hearing. They're hearing that things are going to happen that they didn't expect. And so they're struggling pretty bad, and they needed to hear these words of encouragement. Let me ask you, how many of you guys have been overburdened by bad information or by concerns or struggles throughout the week? And you really, you've needed somebody to give you some encouragement. That's what we find Jesus doing right here. He's giving them the encouragement that they need, right? They needed to know that if they were faithful, that if they were steadfast, it was going to all be okay. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Let's look at John 14, 1. <clears throat> he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Well, what's he saying when he's saying, Let not your heart be troubled? <clears throat> Jesus is about to go through a mockery of a trial. If you guys have never studied the trial of Jesus, it was completely illegal in everything that they did. They did it by night. They had false witnesses. And the list would go on and on and on. And so... He's going to go through this mockery of a trial. He's going to be publicly shamed, and then he's going to be nailed to a cross. In their minds, they're thinking it's all coming to an end. This isn't what we had planned. And so they needed a solid faith to be able to make it through all the things that were about to take place. It's really the same faith that we need when we're struggling with temptations and trials and sadness. And, and I know that we all go through these things. Imagine how much better you would feel if Jesus literally could tell you personally, it's all going to be okay. Well, actually, He does through His Word here. We don't have Him standing here today talking to us. We don't have Him talking to us miraculously, but we have His Word. And we see what He's telling the apostles here. And one of the things I find interesting, Jesus, who's about to go through this sham of a trial, who's about to be murdered, He's not looking for consolation. He's actually the one who's doing the consoling. Why? He's preparing them. He's wanting them to be prepared for eternity. He goes on and he says, Ye believe in God, believe also in me. A lot of people at the time didn't believe it. The disciples understood it, but Jesus was God in the flesh. You can't believe and accept one without the other. Now, if you watch Oprah Winfrey, she'll tell you you can't. Oprah said, There's many paths that will take you to heaven. That's not what Jesus teaches. Uh, Jesus, He's the Son of God. He's actually the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, and He was going to establish His kingdom, but, but the problem was it wasn't in the way that the Jews wanted. They literally wanted an earthly king. They literally wanted a restored Israel that they had under the prominence of King David and that they had under Solomon. That's what they were expecting, physical things. But Jesus didn't come back for that. And so he's trying to prepare them for this spiritual kingdom that would be ushered in. We're talking about the church. Now, again, you may say, how in the world could they have this all wrong? Let me ask you a question. And I know the answer because I fell into this. How many of you guys have had preconceptions regarding Christ, regarding the church, or regarding the doctrine of the church, and then you found out later that what you preconceived or what you thought wasn't actually what the Bible taught. It's happened to me, and I'm sure that it's happened to you. And it was happening to the Jews. They were looking for a physical kingdom with a physical throne with a king on it and a restored Israel. Matter of fact, the Jews are still waiting for that. And they reject Christ, and they reject the church. And as I began to think about this throughout the week, the vast majority of people that I work with in my secular job, many of them have missed guided perceptions. They misunderstand what the Bible teaches on a number of things regarding the church, regarding Christ, regarding the doctrine that we are to live by. And the ultimate result for this misconception for many is, is that they're not prepared for heaven. I'm not saying they're bad people at all. I'm not saying the Jews that rejected Christ were bad people, but their preconceptions of what Christ was and, and, and His purpose and, and all of that, it caused them to eventually be led astray because of their preconceptions and they weren't prepared for eternity. And guys, that is happening to people. It's happening to people all the time. Let's go to verse 2. 
Jesus begins to tell them, even though their, their preconception of what would happen is not the purpose for why Jesus came, He wanted them to know that there is something that's better that is waiting. There's something wonderful. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. His Father's house here is a reference to heaven. Right? The word mansion, if you look it up, really could be rendered as a dwelling place, more specifically a resting place, or what we would call a home. And as I thought a little bit about this yesterday, you know, there was a song that immediately popped into my mind. We sing it quite often here. And how many of you guys are familiar with that song, This World Is Not My Home? There's a, there's a mansion waiting. There's a dwelling place waiting. Listen to the first passage of that song. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. What's the point of the song? And what is Jesus trying to get them to understand? My, my true home is my Father's house. That's my home. That's where I need to be prepared for. We're looking forward to eternity. We're looking forward to heaven. And Jesus says, I've prepared a place for all of the faithful. Guys, just think about that for just a second. There's a place prepared for the faithful. Now, here's the sad part, and nobody wants to talk about this. Just as there is a, a place prepared for the faithful, there's a place prepared for the unfaithful. People don't like to talk about that too much anymore. By logic, we get it, and there are a number of verses that deal with it. <clears throat> I won't spend a lot of time on it. But I do want you to look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-5. Notice what he says here. And I'm going to point something out in this passage that I want you to remember as we continue to go forward. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. What is this lively hope? He's going to let us know. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible. Let me pause. That's the lively hope that we have. It's this, it's this inheritance which is incorruptible. It fadeth not away. Right? We live in corruptible bodies. They decay. They die. But this inheritance incorruptible, that won't happen. He goes on. And undefiled, it's pure. And that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Listen closely ready to be revealed in the last time. What is going to be revealed in this last time? This, in, this inheritance, this incorruptible inheritance, this heaven. It's going to be revealed in the last time. Now, I want you to remember that. Put a little pin mark there because we're going to come back to that phrase here. What did he just tell us? And what is Jesus trying to get the disciples to understand when he said, I've gone to prepare a place for you? Heaven is the faithful follower of God's Inheritance, And that's what Brother John just read as he listed there in the chapter of faith of all those faithful in the Old Testament who are looking forward to their eternity in heaven. And the same is true for the Christian. We have a house not made with hands. Let's go on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to actually read verses 1 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, go to verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, what's he talking about? He's talking about our physical bodies. If our physical bodies were dissolved or if they were gone, if that were to happen, which let me let you in on a secret, it's going to. Right? If that were to happen, which it will, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about a spiritual body. If the spiritual body die, or if the physical body dies, there is a spiritual body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Let me pause for a minute. You guys know what an earnest payment is? An earnest payment is the down payment. Basically, it's the money you give when you're buying a house that says, I'm not going to back out on the deal. Like, I'm literally going to go through on this. And he says, we have the earnest of the Spirit. What's he talking about? The Holy Spirit was proof of God's promise. In essence, it was the earnest. 
I am assuring you this is going to take place. We could see it through the miraculous done through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We could see it through the miraculous giving of the inspired text. The list would go on and on. But this Holy Spirit is the earnest that this inheritance is going to come through. It's going to take place. It's trustworthy is what he's saying. He goes on. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We, got, we realize that flesh and corruption cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? While I'm in the body, I'm not with the Lord. But there will come a time when I'm not in this body, but I'll be in my spiritual body. And at that point, I will be able to be with the Lord. <clears throat> he goes on, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What's he saying? For me, as much as I don't want to die, I'm not scared to die, but I don't want to die. But I should be ready to leave this physical body and, and receive my spiritual body as I look forward to my eternity in heaven. That's what he's saying. And Jesus, again, is trying to get his disciples to be prepared for eternity as he's, his, he's teaching this in John 14. Let me point something out here. And this is where I said some people are going to be in shock when I say it. Nobody here probably who has studied it will be in shock. Uh, and I wish I could spend a lot more time on it. Most everybody talks about when someone dies, my loved one's in heaven. How many of you guys have heard that? Guys, nobody's in heaven right now. And you may be saying, well, what? What do you mean nobody's in heaven? I was taught when I was a little child that people were in heaven when they died. I never read the Bible, though. Nobody has gone to heaven yet. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he tells him exactly that. Listen to John 3, 12-13. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Listen very closely. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, and the Son of Man which is in heaven. Heaven. Nobody has ascended to heaven yet. Jesus tells Nicodemus, nobody's gone to heaven yet. And you may again be saying, what in the world are you talking about, Sean? I've never heard this. I was taught people went to heaven when they died. Well, you need to go back and spend some time. And when I say this, guys, when I went to school to be a minister, I knew I didn't know anything. And so I just sat and listened, and I read, and I listened, and I read. And virtually everything I had been taught from the time I was a child was wrong. But the Bible's never wrong. And so as you go back and you look at the accounts all throughout the New Testament, I'm going to give you some more passages to prove this. But for example, as you go on over to Luke 16, where Jesus uh, speaks about Lazarus and the rich man, he talks about the Hadean realm, okay? Remember again when I said back in 1 Peter 1.5, put a pen mark, heaven is not going to be revealed until the last time. In that last time, he says, heaven will be revealed. This is the judgment. Until the judgment, all people are in the Hadean realm. This is the world of the unseen. It is made up of two totally different areas. We have, and I'll talk about those. We have the area for the wicked, and we have the area for the righteous. Matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to the thief on the cross, he talked about being in paradise. Well, you may be saying, can you explain to me these two areas of the Hadean realm? Because I have never heard this. We've studied this in great detail. And you can find a lot of people teaching on it online, but the majority of people have just never studied their Bible. Here's the two areas of the Hadean realm. You have the place of the wicked, which is only named once in our Bible. The King James translates it as hell. Here's what's, here's what's troublesome for most people. The King James translates this word as hell, and the word that I'm talking about is actually Tartarus, right? That is, that is the intermediary area for the wicked in the Hadean realm. But there's another word called Gehenna. Gehenna is actually the final resting place, hell. Well, King James renders both of those as the word hell. There are two totally different words. There are two totally different places, okay? Here is the intermediary area. Listen to 2 Peter 2.4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, that word is Tartarus, King James translates it as hell, but that word is Tartarus. It's in the Hadean realm. And that's where he sent these angels that had sinned and delivered them into chains of darkness. Notice this, 
to be reserved unto judgment. They're in this area in the Hadean realm, Tartarus, waiting for judgment. At the judgment, you will then have heaven and you'll have what we all know as hell or Gehenna. That's the eternal resting places for the faithful and for the wicked, okay? But up until the judgment, all of the wicked and the sinful angels are in Tartarus, okay? That's where they are. That's where sinners and demons are awaiting their eternity in hell. Also, uh, I think I stuck it in your notes. Yeah, I did. Jude 1.6, Revelation 20.14, and we can look at another one. Now again, King James translates both the word Gehenna and also Tartarus as hell. They're two totally different places, okay? <clears throat> Tartarus is the intermediary place. Gehenna is your final resting place if you're wicked, okay? The other place that we're talking about in the Hadean realm, the place for the righteous, is known as paradise, Luke 23, 43. This is the dwelling place, which is also called Abraham's bosom, over in Luke 16, 22. And those in paradise are waiting their home in heaven. Let me explain it this way. <laughs> I doubt any of you guys have ever been into a, a courthouse and, and had to be tried for something. But if you had, or if you've watched on TV, when they sentence you, do they take you straight to the prison? They don't, do they? They take you back, you sit and you wait until the official sentencing, and then you go to where you're supposed to go. They send you to the prison, right? It's the exact same thing. All of the faithful people that have died and the unfaithful people that have died, they go to this intermediary place. The good people, the righteous people, they go to what we call paradise or Abraham's bosom. And there's a great divide, it says, there in Luke 16. You can't, you can't cross it. On the wicked side, there is Tartarus, right? And both of those people stay there until the final judgment, at which everybody will be judged, and then we will go to our respective places. I'm going to prove that to you here with a few more verses, but I'm going to go ahead and pause for just a minute, and we're going to pick back up with what Jesus says, because Jesus is teaching this. He's going to come back, and He's going to get these people to take them to this prepared place. Let me pause for a minute. If everybody was already in heaven, why would Jesus have to come back and get them to take them to the prepared place? Well, the reason is, is because they're not there yet. And I know that this is shocking for people who've never really studied this, but just listen to what Jesus says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And the reason is, is because when you die, you don't go straight to heaven. And the Bible teaches it in a number of places, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Again, if this is shocking to you, don't discount it just because I'm saying it, you've never heard it. I had never heard it either until I actually studied my Bible over and over and over again. And, and then I understood what he was saying. Jesus says, I'm going to return for those who are prepared, right? Although he's going to go away and the disciples would have been struggling with this, here's what he tells them, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. And I'm going to take you to this place that I've prepared. How many of you guys have ever heard someone say, well, Jesus is coming back soon. I see the signs all the time on the highway. Or how many of you guys have said, I actually think I know when Jesus is coming back. I've been following the signs. And so I'm pretty sure I know. I see the date setters all the time, right? This is when Jesus is coming back. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, this is talking about the day the Lord comes back, the day of judgment, so cometh as a thief in the night. You guys ever had a thief tell you when he's going to come? He just sneaks up on you, doesn't he? Usually it's in the middle of the night when you're not expecting it, right? That's what we're learning here. The day of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night. There's no signs. You're not going to know. Listen to Matthew 24, 35, and 36. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Now, if we go back and study this, guys, pull all the verses talking about judgment, that's what happens at the final judgment. Everything passes away. It's gone. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, which day and hour? The judgment day. He talks about it in a number of passages. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Nobody knows when the, when the day of judgment's coming. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. He says, my Father is the only one that knows. These date setters that are telling you Jesus is going to come back on X number and we, can, we know the signs, most of them are actually misusing Matthew 24 and a number of other passages, but they don't know. Jesus says nobody knows but the Father. So he's going to come back like a thief in the night. You're not going to know. So what's he saying? You need to be prepared. 
prepared for eternity. And so as Jesus is comforting these apostles, and I think they would have been, although still grieving, we can take comfort. Go on over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want you to follow along with me starting in verse 13. Most people who are really confused about the judgment day, Jesus coming back, they've never really come back and just read this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4 starting in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He's talking about those who are dead. Okay, That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, these are faithful Christians, will God bring with Him. Why are these faithful that have died? Why is He having to tell them, don't worry, those are going to be brought and they're going to go to heaven? Why would He have to tell them that? Because they're not in heaven yet. He's saying, don't worry, they haven't been left. He says He's going to bring them with Him. When Jesus comes back, He's going to bring the dead that are already, the faithful dead, the ones that have died, He's going to bring them too. He's having to tell them that. And the reason is because they're not in heaven yet. He goes on. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them, that word prevent in the King James is antiquated, shall not precede them which are asleep. All right, when Jesus comes back, who are the two groups of people? The ones that are alive and the ones that have died, right? Neither one of them has gone to heaven yet. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Notice this. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Why are the dead rising if they're already in heaven? Because they're not in heaven yet, right? Those physical bodies are going to, in a twinkling of an eye, be turned into spiritual bodies. And you may be saying, Sean, do you understand how that happens? I do not. But I know that it happens. How God will do it, my mind cannot grasp it. But I know that this physical body, the elements of my physical body, even though they be decayed, they can't go up to heaven. But my new spiritual body can. And so the dead in Christ will rise instantaneous. That new spiritual body will be able to arise and go to heaven. Okay? And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice this. To meet the Lord in the air. Let me pause. You guys ever see anywhere in the scriptures where it talks about Jesus coming back and putting his feet on this earth again? I see head shaking. No. Don't people teach that? They teach it all the time. There's a misunderstanding about the, about the kingdom. Uh, Go back and look at Revelation. John said he's already, he's already in the kingdom. The kingdom was the church. Jesus said he was going to establish the church and give the apostles the keys to the kingdom. Right? We find past tense where you've got Christians already in the kingdom. The kingdom is the church. I could go back and spend a lot of time talking about that. Jot down Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Um, look at Revelation uh, 1, 1 and 2. Those aren't in your notes. And you'll find that John's already in the kingdom with these other fellow Christians. Right? We're not waiting for a thousand-year kingdom to come in the future. Uh, I could go back and spend a whole other sermon on that. I will not. I don't have time. He says, to meet, them in the, to meet the Lord in the air, notice this, once we meet the Lord in the air, His feet have never touched the earth, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If we're going to ever be with the Lord in heaven, that means He's not leaving us to come back to earth to establish another kingdom. Do you get that? People just have to read and pay attention. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, right? Well, I guess that is comforting for those who are faithful. I mean, why can we as Christians take comfort in this? Well, did you notice when Jesus says He's going to prepare a place, He then goes on and He says, and you guys know the way. There's a prepared way to heaven. Now, let's look at verses 4 and 5. John 14, 4 and 5. <clears throat> Thomas doesn't get it. And I probably wouldn't have either, right? I'm lucky that I can go back and read my New Testament over and over and over and over again, and I can tie it in with the Old Testament, and it all makes sense. Thomas doesn't get it. Jesus says, And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Guys, to have a prepared church means that there was a prepared way to enter into 
the church. And Jesus says, you know the way. Knowing the way implies action, doesn't it? If I was to go to someone's house and, and I said, you know, how should I drive over there? And they say, you know the way. What implies action? It implies there's a very specific way that I need to go. This isn't in your notes, but jot down Matthew 7, 13 and 14. There's a very narrow gate, as a matter of fact. And jot down Matthew 7, 21 and 22, and you're going to find out a lot of people who thought they were on that path are going to be told, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They thought they knew the way, but they didn't know the way. Thomas asks this logical question, how can we know the way? Have you guys ever noticed a lot of people think they know the way to heaven? These are the same people that actually think that everybody's already in heaven. And these are the same people that are often confused about the church. They're confused about the doctrine of the church. They're confused about a number of things. And that's because many people have simply never studied the way to heaven. Jesus, as recorded in our scripture, details the way. Let's go ahead and look at verse 6. Jesus is trying to help Thomas get this understood. He's trying to get him prepared for eternity. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What's he mean when he says, I am the way? Well, Jesus provided the way by laying down his life for us. Listen to Romans 5, 6, and 9. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Does that describe every one of us? It does. He goes on, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified or righteous by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. He's the way, right? And there's no other way to God but through Him. Listen to Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You go back and watch Oprah, and what will she tell you? There's plenty of different paths to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. Where did you come up with that nonsense? That's not book, chapter, and verse. You can't find that. It taught anywhere in our Scriptures. The Catholics teach that. Growing up as a Catholic... Uh, we oftentimes were told, told about uh, Mary the co-redemptress. You could be saved through Mary, right? The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Christ is the only way, and it's through Him. Now, let me point something out, and this is very interesting. I wish I had more time to speak about this. How many of you guys are familiar with the fact that the church is called the way six times in the, books, in the book of Acts? The church, the Christians, are called the way. You'll find it, and I did jot the verses down. Acts 9-2, Acts 19-9, Acts 19-23, Acts 22-4, Acts 24-14, Acts 24-22. Why are they calling the church the way? And how does that coincide with the fact that Jesus says He is the way? Well, Jesus is the way. He would establish His church, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Those who were added to the church are of Christ, or of the churches of Christ. It just means possession, Romans 16, 16. And they are in Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, when they are baptized into Christ. And so, those of the way are on their way. It's the way to get to heaven. Jesus is trying to get them to understand this. He goes on and He says, I am the truth. Let me point just a few verses out here because Jesus is God. Listen to John 1.1. A lot of people don't realize this either. In the beginning was the Word, that word is lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice again, in the beginning, Christ has always been the same as God has always been and the same as the Holy Spirit has always been. We could go back and look at a number of passages, but we have three in one. We have the Godhead being spoken of here. I don't have time to talk about it, but the Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation, which is the worst translation ever made, written by a gentleman, is actually written, the guy who oversaw the committee, never had any formal Greek training or Hebrew training. He actually went to Cincinnati Bible School. I can give you his name, uh, Franz, by, by memory. Uh, never had any formal education in any other language. This is the guy that translated their 
their version, the New World Translation, and they translate it as, He was a God. No, Christ was not a God. They teach He was a created God. He was God. He was with God. He was God. The Word was God. Listen to John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Christ was the logos. That word means word. Christ is the word. And his word is truth. And he spoke the words of the Father. John 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works, right? Jesus was God in the flesh. He spoke truth. Listen to John 14, 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. Christ is the, he's the logos. He's the word. He is the truth. And the reason he's the truth is because it's impossible for God to lie. Listen to Titus 1, 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, you can count on it, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And Christ was God in the flesh. God cannot lie. And again, you see that Christ was present at the beginning of the world. There was never deceit found in, in our Lord and Savior's mouth. Not, not one time. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile. That word actually could be deceit. Uh, it also can be translated as trickery or by implication here, deceiving somebody by trickery or lying to them. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. What are we saying? You can have complete, absolute confidence in what it is that Christ is saying regarding our salvation and this inheritance in heaven where he has gone and prepared a place for the faithful. He goes on, I am the life. What a small sentence, but what a powerful sentence. He is the giver of all physical life. Notice John 1.3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Let me point. Go ahead and jot down Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It teaches the exact same thing. I didn't put it in your notes. Let me point something out. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house and knock on your door, which they haven't been back for quite a while, but when they came and they said that Jesus was a created being, I said, well, that's not possible. Let's go back and look at John 1, 3 and Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Jesus created everything. They said, well, yeah, He did. Uh, after he was created. And I said, no, John 1, 1 shows he was at the beginning with God, eternal. And being eternal, he created everything. And they said, he did create everything after he was made. I said, nope, let's go back and read John 1, 1 again. Guess what, guys? They're, in, they're stuck in a loop. You know why? Because they teach error. Their Bible translation is not even close to being accurate, and they believe things that aren't, they're not quite right. Just trust the Word. A faithful translation. You can trust it, okay? Now, all things were created by Him. He is the giver of all physical life. The very fact that we are here is because Christ made life possible. He also is the giver of spiritual life. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That wrath will be seen in the Hadean realm. They're in the area of Tartarus and eventually in the area we know as Gehenna or the eternal, eternal spot where you will stay, which most people just call hell, the eternal abode forever. That's where that wrath takes place. Ultimately, Jesus is the giver of all eternal life, and that's because He's the author of salvation. Listen to Hebrews 5.9. And again, this totally rejects Miss Oprah and a number of other people. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. I don't know how you can go out and teach that there are multiple ways to be saved when it says He's the author of eternal salvation and the only ones that are saved are the ones that obey Him. What is that? Well, that, that's saying I believe in Him. Well, how do you know you believe in Him? Well, you obey Him. You can see the fruits, right? 
Jesus is the one that redeemed us with His precious blood. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. All I mentioned this in a sermon a couple weeks ago, or I can't remember when. All people who have ever been saved are saved through the blood of Christ. Under the law of Moses, they were sacrificing bulls and goats, but they couldn't, they couldn't atone for sin. They needed a spotless lamb. They needed a perfect sacrifice. And so when they died, they were looking forward to that blood. Even though they were righteous, they hadn't had the blood that could take away their sins. And Christ did. Go back and read through the book of Hebrews. I don't have any more time to spend on that. I'm going to just move on. But all people who were saved are redeemed through the blood of Christ. That's the only way. It's not going to come through Muhammad. It's not going to come through any type of other paganism. It's not going to come through atheism, agnosticism, anything else. There's just one way. That's through the blood of Christ. And Jesus' answer that He just gave here, this answer on the way, that is complete exclusivity to Christ and His church. He says, nobody comes to the Father except through Me. The real question I would have, and, and guys, I did have this question. Remember, I was raised Catholic. I went to a number of churches looking for who teaches the truth. We just went from church to church to church, and we would follow the Bible and say, well, that's not in there, and we'd, we'd move on, right? There are tons of churches out there. Here's the question. Does the church that you're attending, if you're watching this online, does everything that they teach line up with the Bible? And guys, I've told you this all the time. If you ever hear me teach anything that is not correct, you show me and I will come back up here and correct it publicly because I don't want to be lost and I don't want to lead anybody else astray. That's why I spend so much time going through. And that's, I know people don't like this many verses, but people are being deceived. You need this many verses every time somebody speaks on the Bible. If they say something, where did they get it from? You need to go back and double check it because nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Again, that eliminates the idea that you can just go be saved in any group you want. I'm going to listen to Ephesians chapter 4. And tell me as I read this if this allows for you to be saved wherever you want, however you want. Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6. It says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. What is the unity of the Spirit? What did the Holy Spirit give us? The inspired Word of God. The unity of the Spirit is unity through the inspiration of the Spirit. He gave us this inspired Word. The prophets... All of the men who spoke by inspiration were literally inspired through the Holy Spirit. And if we all believed and did the same things, we would be in unity through the Spirit. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body. How many bodies are there, guys? There's just one. There's just one body. And somebody will say, well, there's one big body, but some of the groups teach different things. Let's keep going. There's one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. How many callings are there? Jehovah's Witnesses think that there's going to be 144,000 in heaven. Originally, they thought there was only 144,000 total, but their numbers got larger than that. So they had to change their doctrine. 144,000 go to heaven. Everybody else is in paradise on earth. That's one hope. You have the Mormons who believe that you actually get your own planet and become a god. You may be saying, that's insane, right? They do. Go do your research. They won't tell you at your front door, but they believe it, right? And if you, if you ask them, they're going to be like, yeah, they believe that. There's another hope. We can list a bunch of them. What's the one hope? A prepared place, heaven, for the faithful. That's the one hope. And it's not limited to 144,000. All the faithful, every one of them, right? Jesus says, I'm not going to leave any of them. The faithful that died in Christ, them, and the faithful that are alive, at that time, we're all going to meet Him in the air, and we're going to that place. It's not limited to 144. There's one hope, one Lord, one faith. Do we have one faith amongst groups today that call themselves Christians? Logically, come on, guys, be honest. No, we don't. I know people don't like this, but being that I grew up in a different faith, I can say it. There's the Pentecostal faith. What do they teach? Pentecostal doctrine. There's the Baptist faith. What do they teach? Baptist doctrine. I've actually got their books down in my office. The Catholic faith. What do they teach? Catholic doctrine. Do the Baptists and the Catholics believe the same thing? No, let's be honest. Do the Pentecostals and the Catholics believe the same thing? No. Do the Nazareans and the Baptists believe the same thing? No. That's not one faith. How many faiths are there? 
Just one, our New Testament. If every church in the world lived only by the New Testament and, and rejected man-made doctrine, how many churches would we have? One. One body, one faith. I know people don't like when I do that, but guys, let's be logical and let's be honest. Because here's the problem. If we ever get to the point where we forget this, we could be one of these groups who's not doing everything by book, chapter, and verse. And we're in just as much trouble as they are. He goes on, one Lord and one faith, one baptism. Some people say it's baptism in the Holy Spirit. Some people say it's baptism in water. Some people say baptism is sprinkling and some say it's pouring. Some say it's baptism in the Holy Ghost. Every conversion account, there is a baptism. Guess what it's in? The Greek word is hooter. It's water. H-U-D-O-R. It means water every time. Every time. No exceptions. What's the one baptism? Immersion in water. That's what baptizo is. So if you're in a body, which I was, and they took me as an infant and they poured water on me and said I was baptized, was I baptized? No. It's a full immersion in water. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Go over to Acts 2, 38, which start listing the verses. It's always baptism in water. There's no other option. And it's full immersion every time. Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch and uh, Philip the evangelist went down into the water. He goes on. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Guys, that is unity. That's the church. These are the prepared people who are going to a prepared place. And if you're not these prepared people, what's your outcome? There's not different methods of salvation. And I encourage anyone here, and again, I fell for this. I fell for this. Anybody who has been told, say the sinner's prayer and you're saved. Anybody, you find me book, chapter, and verse where that happened. Because I've never seen it. And I have read my New Testament over and over and over again. It's not in there. You will never find it in any conversion account. You know who started that and made it popular? I'm getting angry right now. Billy Graham. And he didn't even come up with it. He stole it from someone else, and he made it popular. And guys, I don't have time to talk about this, but Brother Garland Elkins met him down in Memphis, Tennessee, and he called him out on it, and he said, yeah, but guess what? Who's got the crowds? He knew the truth. He didn't care. He knew that what he was teaching wasn't true. There is not multiple methods of salvation. To reject the Word is to reject Christ. To reject Christ is to reject the church, and to reject the church means an eternal damnation, not salvation. And you may say, that's really harsh, Sean. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't. And I don't think any of you do either. And I have to, I have to speak very plainly like this because I was once one of these people who thought I was going to heaven, and I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I wasn't living the way I should live. I wasn't living in alignment with the Scriptures. I didn't worship the way I was supposed to worship. I didn't meet any of the requirements. I was not prepared for eternity. Let me give you one more passage. So heaven's a prepared place for prepared people. We've already learned that we need to be prepared. We do that by listening and obeying the warning of Jesus according to the Word. And then He says, you need to watch. You need to be prepared. Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. We've already covered this, haven't we? He's coming back like a thief in the night. You don't know when He's coming, so you need to be prepared. You need to watch. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, remember He said He's coming back like a thief? You think this is happenstance or this is just a coincidence here? It's not a coincidence. If you'd have known what watch the thief would come, he would have watched. It would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. What's he saying? You need to be prepared for eternity. You need to trust that promise. When Jesus said he went to prepare a place, he's coming back for the faithful. And so not only do we want all people who are not yet Christians to become Christians, we want to be faithful Christians. And so that's why I end, most of my ser I end every sermon a little different possibly, but every sermon I end the same way. Because I don't know who here has never obeyed the gospel, and I don't know who's watching me online that's never obeyed the gospel. 
And I really wish somebody would have sat me down when I was trying to figure this out. It took me a while. Uh, and finally, I had a, a preacher that actually just sat me down and said, let's go through the verses. Everybody in the New Testament was saved the same way. Every time. There was a minister or an, an evangelist or a preacher, whatever you want to call him, who was teaching the Word of God. That's how faith comes. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. They were being taught what they needed to do to go to heaven. Part of that included talking about the church, talking about the unity of the church, talking about their sins, talking about repentance of sins, talking about the need to be faithful. That's why Jesus talks about the need to repent, Luke 13, 3 and 5, right? All people have sinned, Romans 3, 23. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And Jesus says, therefore, you need to repent. But that's not all you need to do. You also need to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Then you need to be baptized in water. We're talking immersion, right? You need to have heard the word. You need to believe that Jesus was a Messiah. Messiah. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess Christ. It literally says, unto salvation, right? Anytime the Bible says something's needed, it's needed. If it says it's required for salvation, it's required for salvation. And so you need to confess Christ, and you need to be immersed in water. And baptism in water, although people get angry, it is the culminating act in every conversion account. And I had people say, well, you don't need to do it to be saved, but you need to do it to show that you're being obedient. Let that sink in for a minute, guys. If you don't do it, are you being obedient? You can't be saved before you've been obedient. I don't have time to go back and deal with it. Just read Mark 16, 15 and 16. He that believeth not. If you haven't done it, you don't believe. Uh, the, the word there is apisteo, the Greek word. It means disobey. Jesus said, he that believeth, and he goes on, and then you see the contrast. He that disbelieveth, or believeth not. That word is disobey. If you don't do what God has told you to do, you can't become a Christian. And God adds to the church. Acts 2.47. He knows who's obeyed the gospel, and so therefore he's the one that adds to the church. And once you become a Christian... You need to be faithful. To be prepared for your eternity in heaven, you need to have obeyed the gospel, and you need to have lived a faithful life. You may be saying, that's, that's asking a lot, Sean, a lot, Sean. I know I'll sin. You will, and so will I. And that's why we've been given the avenue to repent and be faithful again, and His cleansing blood will continue to cleanse us. You're over 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. We could give you some other verses. As I draw this to a close, that's my desire for everyone. One, have you obeyed the gospel? Literally, literally obeyed the gospel. And two, are you faithful? If you're not, there's a way we can help you spiritually. You can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.